This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fokotani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Sam, how goes it? It goes Welcome back. Thank you very much. I was in your house last week. You were, and we miss you. Come back. It was really (laughs) lovely to have you here. And um, yeah, it was, and it was, Jack and I were talking about it at dinner tonight, actually, how nice it was and <coughs> and how you guys didn't get to swim together, so you have to come back to go swimming. I did go for a swim over the weekend, just a little one in Auckland, after watching the America's Cup, the race that they did manage to have over the weekend. That's cool. And I'm back at work, but I'm eking out a little bit more holiday at the end of this week in Wanaka. Nice. Nice place. It's a 10k swim around Ruby Island four times. Yay! I don't know why I sign up for these things. And who are we introducing today? Today it is my great pleasure to start the new year off with the very amazing Doug Leader. Doug uh, has, I've, to my, in my opinion, um, has made probably one of the most significant contributions to local body politics in the Eastern Bay of Plenty. First as a councillor uh, in the Oporteke District Council um, and then on to the Bay of Plenty Regional Council where he went in his first term straight into the chair role uh, where he has served as an amazing chair for the last few um, trienniums. But it's the other work that he does in Wellington to support uh, our region and the way that he does that just blows me away massive commitment from an extraordinary person welcome Doug welcome Doug where are you Doug I'm uh, at the uh, home property we've got which is at a place called Waiatahi which is uh, about 12 kilometers west of Bordeki and about 35 east of Fokotani. Uh, the vista I've got from where we live here is the wonderful uh, Ahiwa Harbour, as well as White Island, um, Whale Island, the Rao Rimus, right down to Tikaha. Wonderful coastal views. So that's home for me, uh, and that's where I live most of the time. That sounds like a nice place to call home. <laughs> we don't advertise it too much because we enjoy the... Uh, we enjoy the company that we uh, we have, and uh, yes, it's a, a very nice part of the country. And are you actively farming that land? Yes, we've got a uh, we've got a dairy farm here. Uh, we milk about six hundred and fifty cows 
Uh, it's really a coastal dairy farm, but up the Waitahi Valley, uh, some further eight kilometres up the Waitahi Valley, we have another uh, dry stock farm. And how was farming during lockdown? Well, surprisingly, because it was seen to be a, a necessary industry, life on the farm didn't change much at all. <laughs> Apart from the bubbles that we had to operate in, so you had your family, but out of necessity, when you employ a number of staff, you sort of had a collective bubble. So we employ four extra people. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, those the families or the individuals who make up those four employees, staff members, uh, we had much, you know, a lot of contact with them. We adhered to the protocols in terms of them not going outside their uh, domestic dwelling into town apart from uh, necessities. So generally it was pretty good. And in terms of the necessary function that farming plays, uh, you know, life didn't change a hell of a lot in terms of our day-to-day -day activities. For me, uh, I normally spend uh, five days of the seven in a week in Tauranga. As Maweta said, my job takes me to Wellington uh, and other areas of the country. So that was all on hold. So I spend a lot of time here helping the staff um, on the farm. And we spend a lot of time uh, on Zoom uh, and Teams. And how's the summer treating you? Oh, the summer has been pretty good. Um, it's always uh, very nice when you have um, you have kind weather patterns, and that kind, when I really refer to the word kind, I mean that doesn't always align with what people think uh, might uh, should appear if you're a holiday maker at the beach. But I think generally this year um, the weather patterns have been good. Uh, the moisture is not short, uh, particularly in the eastern Bay of Plenty here. Uh, and having said that, I think the, the weather for holiday makers and campers has equally been uh, very good, and I think there's not too many complaints. And you are, did, you, did I hear chair of the regional council? Yes, I'm chair of Toimoana, and Toimoana is the Māori name for the Bay of Plenty Regional Council which makes up the collective of regional councils throughout the country and then they also form part of the wider local government family. So we come under the umbrella of LGNZ, Local Government New Zealand, but we are a separate entity from what most people refer to as their local authority or their local councils. Regional councils operate on a regional basis and it's really, in most cases, on a catchment basis. So our area of influence um, and control runs from Waihi Beach in the, the west, uh, comes down through Karikari Tauranga, goes out to Rotorua, uh, takes in some parts of the Topo district. So that's essentially some parts of the Napier Talpo Road, which becomes part of or forms part of the Rangataiki River catchment. And then we come down through the Rail Kumaras to East Cape. So an extensive area, um, but a very nice area. And Huwiris has described that you'd had a, a long history of involvement in in governance activities, particularly environmental governance. What drives you in that? 
Well, there's a bit of a backstory to that. So in 1987, I stood for the board of a company at Educom that was then called Bay Milk Products. Um, and in 1987, we they had a major earthquake, so we were uh, involved deeply in some very critical governance and management issues in terms of whether or not we could rescue that company, um, arguing with uh, the insurance companies, particularly the offshore reinsurers. So that's where I sort of got blooded into that. And then I went right through through to 2001 uh, in the dairy industry in, in various roles. And at that time, when I finished with the dairy industry, I decided, oh, well, I'll try and take some of that governance experience from the corporate or commercial type world into the local government. So I spent 12 years on the Apportiki District Council. And I think we made some real changes in terms of introducing um, the discipline of commercial uh, approaches to the way that local government could, could be doing things. Um, and as I said, I did 12 years there. And then I, um, the, the individual who has now passed, uh, asked who was on the regional council as the Eastern Bay then asked me to stand for the regional council, which I did. And I've been there. Uh, so this is my third term. As Ma Weather said, I walked into situation where um, I was elected chair on day one and I've had nothing to do with regional councils <laughs> prior to that so it was a bit of a baptism by fire but um, essentially uh, I just applied some of the disciplines I learned in the commercial sector and um, yes there was a bit of a transition for six six twelve months um, you know I sort of kept my mouth closed eyes and ears open and um, I think it's gone very well so well that uh, in the last I think six months, uh, the Bay of Plenty Regional Council has scored really well in terms of uh, the local government runs an independent audit process on how councils, if you want, it's a voluntary thing, you participate, um, how you behave uh, and operate. And from a governance perspective, the Bay of Plenty Regional Council came out with uh, really good credits. You must enjoy it. Uh, yes, you enjoy the challenge. <laughs> there was a hesitation there. <laughs> well, sometimes it's, uh, you know, I get um, I get a little bit uh, grumpy at times because having come from a commercial background, uh, the approaches and the way that commercial entities do things uh, is a little bit different than the way that local government beha um, sometimes behaves. Um but yeah, it's a challenge, and I think if you can walk away from it at the end saying, look, I think I've left the entity in a better place than when I was there, um, then you know, it's, uh, you've know you achieved an objective. And I think as an example, because one of our biggest, or our biggest territorial authority uh, in our region is Tauranga. Uh, in the last few years, Tauranga at a governance level has had significant challenges in terms of behaviour um, and taking their community with them, making the hard decisions. And unfortunately, just before the close of the 2020 calendar year, Minister Mahuta uh, announced that she was putting commissioners in to run Tauranga City Council, which from a, um, a democracy point of view is, is not ideal. However, um, I think they were given due consideration and opportunity to fix the issues that were raised by some independent observers. Um, 
and they didn't take those steps, I think, in a timely manner, so the minister has stepped in. And at the end of the day, uh, the cardinal responsibility of not only regional councils but local authorities is to consider the ratepayers. And I've got one simple mantra, is that there's only one source of funds, and it's the ratepayer. Um, and at the end of the day, councils spend other people's hard-earned money. Uh, and as long as we keep that mantra in front of us and apply uh, the discipline as to how you do that, in other words, let's not waste it, let's not you know, be frivolous with it, uh, I think it's a good discipline. Do you have to take people with you on that? Those, there must be times when you're having to make decisions that you know people aren't going to like. Absolutely. Um, and as I said, I took some of the lessons that we had when we suffered the earthquake at the Bay Milk Products in Edgecombe, whereby we had a whole lot of shareholders. We were uncompetitive in terms of our performance as a company. And we put in front of those shareholders a very defined plan that ran over about five years. We said we'll report to you six monthly on our progress against that plan and that strategy. And we and during that five-year period, I don't think we lost one shareholder to a competitive company. So people have to have faith uh, and confidence in you that you're going to deliver. Um, but yes, in a governance role, you've got to make those hard decisions. And you're right. Some of those decisions are not always popular. But um, councils are in their activities of looking after infrastructure. So that's horizontal as well as the social components that councils look after. You know, that's halls and well-being and all that. Um, but you just got to take your community with you. You're not going to please all the people all of the time. But I think if people have got confidence uh, in you that you are going to deliver, um, they will take the bad medicine at times when it's needed. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Why this one? Uh, that goes back a long way because Bridge Over Troubled Water uh, was an early 70s um, song by Simon and Garfunkel. And at that time, uh, I was pretty young, <laughs> as you can see, <laughs> in 1970. Um, and at that time, I was in Trentham uh, with a group of about another, I think it was about 78 individuals. We were all um, 18 years of old. And at that time, I was in the... Um, New Zealand Police Department training to be a police cadet and that was one of the songs that we uh, used to play in our recreation room uh, keen young guys very popular song at the time and it sort of had the memory that we were in a uh, uh, an organization where you were um, you did as you're told rather than reason why so yes there were some troubled times in terms of us saying why in the hell do we have to do this you know this is a waste of time and i think bridge over trouble wars and simon garfunkel just uh just met the the measure of come on guys you're going to get this through it you know you might have some troubled times now but there's a bridge over this and we're going to get there and we did because we all graduated in 1971 september 71.
I can I just cannot imagine you being a policeman. Well, I was my winner. Um, 
I went into Trentham and the police training school in uh, January 1970. We graduated in September of 71. Uh, I think there was 78 went in and there's about 75 graduated. Um, the lesson that I learned out of that whole experience, it was a really good employment opportunity. It was disciplined. Um, you learned to make decisions. But my first posting out of Trentham, and I wasn't even 19 at that stage, my first posting was to the Auckland Wharf Police. So I was dumped in at the deep end, as were a few other guys who got posted to that posting, because you had all this theory that you learned at Trentham. But when you end up on the Auckland Wharf Police, you've got the seamen, you've got the shippy girls, you've got the transvestites, you've got all the people that in those days used to congregate around um, the lower Queen Street. So it was having to deal with the world or circumstance in which the world really was. So you had all the theory, but if it doesn't play out and you don't get the confidence of people, um, so that was a really good, a really good lesson, and uh, I value that. And after that, um, I spent another, I think it was about another five years uh, in Naru Awahia. Again, Naru Awahia, a very low decile community. Uh, it probably still is. We really had some challenges there, um, but it was a really good time. Um, and I was referred to as the Maori cop at the time. Um, but again, you know, we held, we had the two really bad hotels with Delta Royal, that's called. Um, but yeah, we made progress. I think we were respected by the community. Um, yeah, we might not have always stuck to convention, but we got the results. Yeah, so that's my background, Mawera. And uh, I left uh, Narawahia uh, and went, went farming in 1979. That's a big change. Had you always wanted to be a farmer? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I had. Um, my parents weren't. weren't. Um, we lived on what I refer to as the wrong side, of, wrong side of the street in Hamilton. So we lived in Frankton in a railway settlement. Um, but that was a good life. Um, and my exposure to agricultural farming came through some of my aunties who were um, farm workers or share milkers, I suppose they were then in Taranaki, especially around uh, Opanaki. So I used to go down there for the holidays and um, yeah, I just loved it. And I thought, well, this is a bit of me. So when I'd done my time in the police department and I thought, well, I might be pushing the envelope here in terms of challenging some of the authority. Um, I thought I'd better get a job myself where I could only criticise myself for the decisions I make. When I asked you about what, if you enjoyed the regional council, you you were talked about how you enjoyed the, the the governance aspect but why the regional council that there's lots of places where you could be putting putting energy what it is a, what is it about the regional council's work that's that's got you hooked uh, well, I suppose having a, uh, a rural property, uh, and it doesn't matter where you are in terms of regional councils, if you've got a regional, a, a rural property, your interface and interaction with the regional council is much greater than with your territorial authority or if you're an urban person living in town um, because they are working alongside you most of the time in terms of more laterally you know, improvements to biodiversity, improvements to water, understanding water systems. Uh, not the slash and burn that was a function of um, uh, past government uh, policies. You know, you had the uh, different incentive schemes, more sheep, more cows and all that sort of stuff. And I think there'd been a turning point probably uh, in the 90s, early 90s. And um, I just thought, oh, well, let's do that. Um, and the farm that we, or one of the farms we've got here, we've got a, 
about 100 hectare QE2 Queen Elizabeth Covenant on that block. And um, my first interaction with the regional council was to get their support to help me fence that off because it wasn't fenced. It wasn't even a QE2 block, just some uh, some bush that we decided to fence off. So that's how I got in, got involved in that. But I think the biggest the biggest challenge with um, with any governance role in a council, having come from the commercial forum, is that in a commercial end, the board or the councillors in our case are appointed for a requisite skill set. Uh, you move into local government, it doesn't matter whether, as I said, it's regional council or local government. You don't have um, you don't have that opportunity to do that. Uh, people get elected by their community for various reasons, um, and the ability to I think one of the biggest challenges for all council laws is to hold the executive to account. And if you can bring to the table a skill set that some of the executive respect, then you're well on the way. Um, and that's the discipline that comes out from having commercial, not saying they get it right all the time. But in council, you know, a lot of very well-meaning people come to table, but they may not have the financial skills. They may not have the engineering skills um, that are required in terms of councils, you know, so you can hold the executive to account. Because councillors generally, well, not generally, they do, they only appoint one person to that job as a chief executive. Um, and that's a, the most important role they've got. But sitting behind or below or behind the chief executive of a whole lot of other executive positions, the councillors need to get their heads around in terms of how does this operate uh, and is there a better way? And I don't mind uh, our councillors challenging our executive in terms of is there a better way. Now, I suppose one of the biggest things that I've had to try and deal with at local government level is that they say, well, this is the way it's done in local government. And I frequently challenge that and say, look, I'm not interested in reasons why not or why you can't do something. Give me the circumstance and the rationale as to how you can say we can do it. It's just a different pathway, um, but it takes a bit of a skill set in terms of having um, being exposed, as I said, to the commercial world. A big part of the regional council's job, in fact, the primary reason for the regional councils is to make real the concept of sustainability. Does that work for you? And what does it what uh, yes, does it mean it does. for you? Yeah, well, sustainability is uh, a term that encompasses a very wide range of activities. So, as I said earlier, one of the challenges got if you can leave the entity, which is a you know more than just sustainability, but if you can leave the entity and in terms of environmental stewardship, if you can leave it in a better space than when you got there, um, I think you've you know you've done really well. Um, at the end of the day, uh, if you're on a rural property or you own a rural property, you own your guardian or you're the kaitiaki of the water, the resources and the year for future generations. Um, and I think in most cases, uh, farmers believe that and, and they actually do it. Sure, there are some uh, some individuals out there who, you know, put a slash and burn and don't worry about, you know, um, don't worry about the next generation. But I think that's one of the values that I appreciate that uh, Māori or Tangata Whenua bring to the table. Um, they never sell. Uh, they never sell land uh, unless it's fee simple land, which they've gone and bought on the market. But in terms of multiply owned Māori land, uh, they keep it forever. And some of the lessons that we can learn off the, especially the the old kuia who have been um, the forefront of challenging. Uh, some grievances that they, or some issues that they have rightly got some grievance about, 
are um, you can you can grab the values that they've got in terms of leaving better than what was given to us. And that, to me, that's basic sustainability. Before we played Simon Garfunkel, we were talking about well-being. I think that one of the things that the pandemic has shown us, in particular the New Zealand's response to the pandemic, is that well-being is really an integration of of systems, that the social system is so connected to the environmental system and the economic system is, is, is part of that. What do you think we can do to really... F- force that home that that idea of that those connected systems to 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 really you know can can we have a benefit from the pandemic from that understanding yes i think you can but we've got to be careful that we don't just use well-being as a and refer to it as uh, or we're going to address well-being as you said what are we actually going to do that will make a difference to people um and let's not forget that it was uh the current government that local government operated under i think uh well, we operate under the four well-being. We operate under the four principles, and the well-being one was only put in um, by the last government. So that'll continue through this government. So that means that local government has to consider the well-beings of well-being of its community. So, in terms of how does local government address those well-beings, that's a very vexed question. And I think as we go through the next. 12, 24 months. The issue and the role of local government in terms of that well-being, looking after the well-being people, is going to come to fore. Um, not to digress, but there's a large debate at the moment about the ability of local government, especially tourist authorities, to provide for what we refer to as horizontal infrastructure. So that's water and waste. And you'd have to say, on balance, um, local government hasn't done a good job out of sight, out of mind, and that's why the government is moving, especially in terms of potable water and wastewater. So if those if those functions get taken away or get centralised to a central provider or you know, central providers, um, what's the role of local government? And I think the debate we need to have is do we get into some form of social consideration in a partnership with the Crown? Um, as to deliver some of those issues around well-being, whether it's um, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, employment opportunities. But if you don't have uh, a happy family, uh, then you don't have a happy life. And I use that in the context that your community is is a big family, and you've got to um, endeavour that you take the, most of the community with you in terms of some of these discussions, so they understand why you're doing things, what you're doing it for, why you're doing it, and how you do it. And if you involve people in that discussion, um, I think you'll get most of them, given that your strategy is the right strategy, you'll get most of them to follow you. Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Party Maori Club. Why this? Look, that is a song that inspires. I think if there um, is ever a song that New Zealand could hang its uh, banner on and say, look, this is about Aotearoa. Um, I was very interested to <clears throat> hear the story between uh, behind the creation of uh, um, Poirier because Dalvanius Prime uh, actually was part, came down to Tolaga Bay, I think it was, Tolaga Mara Bay, and sort of created it there. But I think there wouldn't be many people who would say, look, the inspiration, the joy, character, the enthusiasm uh, that comes out of uh, Poirier um, especially with the break dancing, I can't remember the guy <laughs> sitting in the Waka uh, at Partia there is just inspiring. Every time it comes on the radio, I break into song. Not a very good song or you know voice, but at least it's really good. <laughs>
listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Doug Leader. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mahi aroha nui kia koutou, kotahau I hope you're all having the best 2021, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I'm so happy, I'm so overjoyed, I'm so, so filled with gratitude and joy and bliss to be back together again. And as I have said all throughout our time together last year, these five minutes together each day have just made a huge difference to me all throughout our lockdown experiences together, moving through the different alert levels together, now venturing forth into a state of freedom. You know, I'm just so grateful that we have been able to have these conversations, these times together. And I'm so grateful, Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team for having me. It's a great honour and privilege. Thank you. So I hope that for all of you, your holiday time has been really nourishing for you. I hope you have been able to have some rest and recuperation. I hope that you have had really meaningful and sustaining interactions with those that you love. And like for me, if you have loved ones in other parts of the world, that you have been able to connect and feel love at a distance, despite not being able to be together in person. So of course, beginning again together, I'm so grateful and it has really got me thinking about how we love structure and routine and we love framing things in ways that work best for us. And for me, I'm so grateful that I have the tool of these wonderful shows I get to do with you to reframe what's happening for me in my life and and draw meaning from it. And of course, as a species, this is what we really excel at doing. We're constantly observing and experiencing the world around us and for each of us it's totally unique, a totally unique consciousness is there and we are able to reframe and reorganise those observations and present them to one another and share them with one and learn from each other and teach each other constantly. So this is a wonderful skill that we possess as a species so I'm very grateful to get to share my experiences with you. Thank you and I hope they can be helpful. So of course as we venture forth into 2021 There is a renewed sense of hope, there is a renewed sense of purpose, there is a renewed sense of having this whole year with new eyes that as we move through the cycles of the year, as we move through those aspects of our lives which we we know will unfold in the same way each year. For me I feel that I will be approaching these milestones and these landmarks, these moments in time quite differently and as I head into my teaching Again for this year, I've already had some groups up at my beloved heart's home, Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. I've really enjoyed being able to share with each other our experiences of 2020, what our learnings have been, what our feelings are, how we are doing things differently, how we're caring for ourselves and each other better. All these wonderful, wonderful bells of mindfulness and all these wonderful, wonderful upwellings of inner and outer wisdom that have come from 2020. How lucky we all are to be together and to have lived through this together and for those of us who have had to farewell our loved ones and I know particularly here in Aote Staneer and we we have lost some really wonderful people recently uh, that their legacy that their memory can continue to inspire us and that we can feel a sense of connection with them forever we can love them forever we know that that love and that connection is always there So particularly for me, I'm looking forward to heading off to Fiordland and 
working with lots of wonderful environmental education groups in the coming weeks and months. But really, for me, giving them the opportunity to speak, giving them the opportunity to lead the programme and indicate what's going to work best for them, and I will be there to support, facilitate. So I really hope that for you, as we head into this new year, you're finding new ways of doing, being, feeling, seeing, and they're working really well for you. And I'll look forward to talking tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. Yeah, the song just uh, exudes vibrancy, it exudes happiness, confidence, all those words that, uh, that, that give people a lift during their day. And I think if um, you're aware of the history of Partia, Partia was a um, very vibrant community. It had a big freezing works at Partia. It got closed down and, uh, you know, Partia went down a, a hard road in terms of little employment and then you end up with uh, Partia Māori Club singing that song uh, with the waka and the break dancing in the waka. It's just enduring. Makes anybody's bad day a really good day. Talking about enduring, have we seen lots of changes over the last almost year? What do you think will stick and what do you hope will stick? Uh, you got any specific area in terms of changes? Anything you like. It could be anything from you know the the, the micro individual family type stuff or a whole country. The floor is yours. Okay, so um, one of the complaints that I I've taken out of the last twelve months is that when the pandemic hit, we had all these doom and gloom merchants, economists, advisors saying what this was going to do to the New Zealand economy and everyone was going to be luck and employment was going to be at 16% and all this stuff. Where did we end up? You know, we actually ended up at an unemployment rate of somewhere between four and five. And that is within the threshold of the margins of error of operating what you call a full employment system. So there was a lot of people there talking down the economy, talking down employment, and it hasn't materialised. But to be fair, there has been some elements of the community where it has materialised. So places like Queenstown, Rotorua, um, and entities or um, communities that relied on overseas tourism, yes, they have suffered. However, one of the more positives that comes out of that is the historical, and I think the figure's about $12 billion, that New Zealanders spent annually in travelling internationally has essentially been turned around and spent domestically. And that is really good, really good stuff. Um, can we sustain that? Yes, I think we probably can. I'm more of a glass half full uh, than half empty in terms of some of those uh, issues. But I think, look, you know, generally the provincial economies in New Zealand outside those entities I said that have high tourism, international tourism thing, have, um, have done relatively well. And whatever your politics, you would have to say that the government of the last year, continuing government, did a pretty damn good job in terms of sheltering New Zealanders and Aotearoa from the ravages that we're currently seeing um, being executed throughout the rest of the world. So, yeah, I think rather than talk things down and be naysayers all the time, we should be looking at the opportunities that we can build on. One of those opportunities is build local businesses, local tourism, um, I'm not too sure about the house pricing, the, the New Zealand house price uh, um, index, though. I mean, that's a bit of a worry, but yeah, it is what it is. You've just given us an answer to the, the next question, but I'm going to ask, ask it anyway because then you get a free hit. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic for the the bigger, longer term sorts of questions we face, things like climate change or, or social justice? Uh, 
look, I think uh, let's let's deal with the economic side of it first. Uh, I think one of the things we can take from the, pandem- the pandemic is that New Zealand is a food producing nation. It doesn't matter whether you're in kiwi fruit, horticulture, you know, beef and lamb or dairy. Uh, and the world wants good quality, safe food products. And in the currency of the last 12 months, you'd have to say the demand for New Zealand products, apart from the poor guys who fish for crayfish and couldn't get them into China, has been has been very good. So, um and that is, in my view, something that is built around, built around relationships. It's not necessarily um, going to an auction every month or taking the lowest price, doing being volume being volume driven. We've got to be value driven, and it's about relationships. So relationships that we have with some of our key exporting customers, I think, if we need to, uh, we need to develop uh, further and build on. Um, what can we learn from climate change? Look, climate change is a long-term issue. There is no doubt that the climatic, uh, the climatic situation that we we face year in and year out, because they all vary a little bit, has changed significantly. I'm going to show my age here. From when I was a kid, used to walk to school on the frost every. You know, you do it for probably a couple of months on end. Um, you don't have the degree uh, of frost now, particularly in the up half of the North Island that historically we did. Um, and you've probably got more variability in terms of the weather, especially in rainfall and adverse events. But let's be fair, the, the recording that we do now is a lot, lot better than what we had previously. So previously, we didn't record a whole lot of this stuff. Now we've got the data and implementation and the resource to actually record that. So we're recording this, uh, a lot of this change. Um, but the climate has changed in New Zealand here and internationally for thousands of years. Um, and I think the big debate that people have to get into mind is this climate change over multiple generations, uh, which, as I said, is occurring naturally, or is it addressing the issue that I think most people tend to understand? What is being reduced in terms of climate from fossil fuels and the behaviour of the human race? Um, that, to me, is, is the biggest issue. Are you going to turn around and take fossil fuels, whether it's jet planes, ships, cars, out of the equation in the next you know three to five years simple answer you're not um we're going to get a lot more efficient in terms of the way we use those resources and i can understand the impatience that some young people have in terms of i think doomsday might be around the corner but we will get through this we will evolve as i said efficiencies will increase um, both in the way that especially oils used you know if you've got um, hydrogen on the horizon you've got electric vehicles can afford so I'm quietly confident that we will get there. We just have to be careful that we don't, in my view, we don't. We have to be careful that we don't just chuck uh, millions and millions of dollars into trying to mitigate this activity uh, without taking very good sense advice as to the direction, the steps that we. Those young people. Those young people are going to have a very good argument for making change because they'll have some pretty good evidence that we can make change when we have to. Yeah, that's right. And what we have to understand is that in going down this pathway, that some of the resources or some of the consequence of making changes may well be that uh, our standard of living relative to where we are now may uh, have to take a step back. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, you buy an electric car in the next probably three to five years, it's going to be more expensive than a um, fossil fuel fossil fuel vehicle. But we'll get through it. Um, and some of the other things, I mean, I, I worry sometimes when I hear people saying, let's do away with all fossil fuels. Well, 
the plastics that probably every household in this country uses are all derived from some form of oil. And, you know, you've got to be able to stand up and say, well, what are you going to replace those with? But having said that, if I think there's a really good example in this country where people have made a step change in a very short space of time. Now, it was probably only two years ago, I think, that everybody went to the supermarket. You walked out with a plastic bag that had all your groceries in it. And I think, relatively, time speaking, overnight, that has changed. People take their own bags, and generally, they're pretty happy with it. So that's got to benefit the uh, the environment in terms of what used to be wastage. Uh, and it also benefits um, the climate in terms of all that plastic not being um, utilised from a... Um, a resource called oil. It turned out we could do it. Now, I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time to do it, so we shall have to rattle through them. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? For my efforts, the government appointed me or the minister appointed me to chair what we call the Jobs for Nature program. So that's a $1.2 billion spend in terms of enhancing employment opportunities as a result of COVID, but it was also dovetailed into... Um, into environmental improvement. Uh, that's a lot of money. So I chair that group and I must say that progress we've made, I think, in terms of uh, spending that money for environmental improvement and keeping people in jobs that may well have been out of the job, I think is, um, is really good. Quite proud of that. I think we should have to get you back to talk just about that. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What is the superpower that's got you into the mansion? Oh, I don't think I uh, I have a superpower. Uh, I refer back to my days in the police department where um, the thing that kept you out of trouble and got respect was the manner in which you dealt with people, spoke with people, interacted with people, essentially showing a bit of empathy. But um, when the decision needs to be made, so whatever the options, you make a choice and you go for it. Um, there's nothing worse than uh, not making a decision because you're in a hiatus. So I think my skill set essentially, uh, if our skill set is essentially the ability to get on with a wide ranging group, uh, don't always agree. Uh, don't you know? Don't come out of a discussion in agreement, but at least have some empathy, some understanding for the position that they bring to the table, and say collectively, how can we make a better position going forward? Do you consider yourself to be an activist? No, 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 not at all. Um, I I don't like being what I would call a railroaded, uh, so I can defend myself <laughs> <laughs> um, on the basis of what's the rationale. But no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an activist. Uh, I One of the other things that I did was um, I did the Ahu Whenua Excellence Farming and Excellence in Māori Dairy Farming for about six years. That was really good. That was a really good lesson in terms of understanding the history of a lot of the issues that Māori have regarding their land holdings. And um, I hold that position very dearly. And every year I go back to those Ahu Whenua Awards. Um, Yeah, and a a, a similar thing. You know, once people have confidence um, that you're there to help them, then, you know, I think you're in the tent. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? (laughs) Uh, look, I love waking up in the morning. You get outside, a new day dawns. Uh, what's the challenge for today? I, in terms of my own farming business, uh, I like to leave. I like to have pride in the, the way that farmers present and the job that we do. That's good. In terms of the regional council, if I can go to the regional council and make life uh, better or a little bit easier for some of our customers, that's a good day for me. Um, 
And in doing that, um, I think we had to take both the staff of the regionals and our clientele, so people applying for or wanting to have some interaction council, we've got to put them closer together. So we have a heavy focus on customer service, customer relations or council. So what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or two? Uh, what challenge am I looking for? Look, I think we've still got some way to go in terms of this COVID recovery, especially, as I said, through the Jobs for Nature. Um, we've got some more money to spend there. Uh, and I think um, local government, what I'll refer to as local government reform, is high on the agenda. And I think if we can get local government to step up to the plate in terms of public perception of our performance, that'd be really good. The public perception of local government's performance is, uh, is pretty low. Well, it's, it's abysmal, really. Um, there's an element of misunderstanding there, but there's probably an element of uh, justification there. So local government has to do, um, in my view, has to do better. And I think we're just starting to, and that'll be under the stewardship of the now president, Stuart Crosby, who was mayor of Tauranga, but he's also on the Baby Regional. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Look, I think when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Um, and that's not just on an individual basis. I think that's on uh, a New Zealand incorporated uh, basis as well. And uh, yeah, just think of the abysmal position that some of our international colleagues and partners are in terms of the way they made decisions. And um, look, look, let's not rest on our laurels. But uh, I just think kia kaha. Indeed. Thank you very much for that. Mawara. Um, Doug, uh, you, when Sam asked you what your superpower was and you, you didn't really have an, an answer, you had to think about it a little while and I thought about it too and I think it's your the ability that you have to build really good, solid relationships and just your kindness and respect that you hold people in. You hold people in their mana. And that is the most beautiful thing. And as a recipient of that, I'm thankful for it. And you, um, like everyone I speak to in our community knows you and is thankful for you and the work that you do. So thanks for everything, Doug. We appreciate you. That's very nice. And you probably put it better than I did. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at you know, singing the front. We are going out to Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Heat wave. I'm trying to pretend I'm not back at work this week, so I'm celebrating summer. safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. 
We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and in Waitahi Valley, Doug Leader. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.